Hey, I'm Adam. And I'm Brian. Of Everyone Has a Podcast, and you're listening to Pop Goes Your World. If you haven't already, subscribe on iTunes. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and review. And now it's time for our feature presentation. I'm Chris McBrien, and the pop culture from Generation X is everything to me. And I'm Derek Myers, and I'm here to educate Chris on the great pop culture of today's generation. Episode 185, Moneyball Movie Review. Brian, along with Derek Myers, welcome to Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. Derek, hello. Hello. How are you tonight? Oh, I'm not too bad. How are you doing? Pretty good, thank you. Well, that's good. Uh, Derek, actually, last episode you mentioned you possibly had a special guest lined up for us this week. How did that work out? Did it pan out? Uh, it worked very well. Uh, sitting next to me is mm-hmm. our special guest. For the evening, I've invited my brother, Mark Myers, to join us on the Moneyball movie review. Mark, say hello. Well, hello, and thank you for having me. Mark, Mark, everybody loves you, by the way. Mark, Mark actually is a lifelong baseball fan, a sports fan, you know, general in general, really. And going back to the days when we first met, uh, Derek, you and I, like 25 years ago, we used to all get together in my Toronto apartment and we'd hold these fantasy sports drafts. So unlike today, when you do it all online, back in the old days, we would have to get together in person and hold a draft. And then I'd have to do up the stats manually each week whenever the stats came out in the newspaper. And then I'd mail out these updates to everybody. So it was just uh, things have changed a lot. And that's it's kind of coinciding with the fact that we're doing Moneyball, which is, you know, uh, sort of a you know, game changing kind of thing. So uh, the thing I want to mention about uh, Mark too is a couple things. So if you want to reach out to him on Twitter at Myers 22, that's M Y E R S 22. And Derek, you have yourself a nickname. We affectionately call you caveman. Mark, you also have a nickname from back in the day. Do you want to share that with us right now? Sure. So (laughs) as a child, my brother and my cousins used to think that I spoke very loud and I like to clap. And so everything was about being magnified. So they ended up calling me the horn, which really went even a little bit longer. It was the horn of nations uh, (laughs) that was coined by my cousin. So that ended up being a fantasy baseball team name that I think one Chris McBride absolutely finds hilarious. I remember the first time we had you come in and play fantasy baseball with us, we all name our teams. And yeah, you named it Horn of Nations. And I was like, that is like the coolest name ever. Like, what does that name mean? And he's like, oh, that's my nickname. I'm like, what kind of a nickname is Horn of Nations? Like, it's just the coolest nickname ever. So I just think that's so cool. Uh, But anyway, thanks for joining us, Mark. It's been a long time since you and I uh, have got together, but uh, but we'll get to that in a second. Uh, before we get started, is anything new in the world of pop culture for you, Derek? 
Uh, I haven't had a lot of time to do pop culture stuff this week. The mm-hmm. only thing I had a chance to do was um, I started watching a, a well, not a new show, but the second season of a show I enjoy a lot called Lupin. It's on Netflix. Uh, about six months ago, I remember talking about season one. It's a French show, uh, and it's about a gentleman thief who uses the moniker Lupin. And I think the first season was six episodes, and it was it was excellent. It was quite good. It ended on a little bit of a cliffhanger. Second season dropped this week, so I've had a chance to watch the first two or three episodes so far. I think, again, it's six episodes, and it is, it's every bit as good as season one. So if you are a fan of Lupin season one and you were not aware season two has come out, I encourage you to check it out. If you have never seen it before and you're not afraid of subtitles, uh, give it a try. It's, it's quite good. It's quite strong. It reminds me a little bit of... Um, the recent remake of Sherlock that the BBC did with Benedict Cumberbatch. It's sort of in that same kind of vein of like detective story, thief story, con artist story. It's it's sort of told in the same kind of way. And the only thing that might really uh, turn people off is the fact that it's not in English. So you got to read the subtitles, but it's quite good. So by next week, I should have the, the, the full season completed and I'll let you know if it uh, holds up. But so far, three episodes in, it's quite good. And unfortunately... No documentaries for me this week. Ah, that's all right. I mean, it's all good. Mark, anything uh, new in pop culture for you? Well, on that, actually, from a documentary standpoint, that is something that uh, I have been watching lately. Wait, 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 wait. Hold on. Did you just say you watched a documentary? Is that what you just said? I did. For 40 days and 40 nights, watch documentaries. He likes to learn about the world. It's Derek's Documentaries. Derek's Sorry, I should have amended that to Mark's documentary. Or, or you should have said it's Derek's brother's documentary. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> what uh, what did. documentary did you want? You guys are like a documentary family. It's amazing. I didn't know uh, I was getting serenaded. but uh, <laughs> <laughs> Poorly at that, but uh, it's all good. Um, what documentary a, did you watch? I'm a diehard 1980s, early 90s wrestling fan. So oh, yes. um, the A&E has redone a bunch of do- uh, biographies. Um, and one of the one of the most recent ones I watched was on the Ultimate Warrior, which was really good. But there's actually a program through Crave called the Dark Side of the Ring, and it goes a lot deeper into the back. <laughs> it's not just a clever name, the Dark Side of the Ring. And there's actually an Ultimate Warrior episode that dropped. So the A and E one is all through the perspective of the second wife. The, the dark side of the ring is all through the perspective of the first wife. Very interesting. Mm. Same person, two very different documentaries. So we were talking about this last week, uh, Derek and I were, how he's been watching, you know, the A&E documentaries on the wrestlers. And I mentioned jobbers. So Mark, I'm wondering, do you remember all those jobbers, those jabronis from the 80s and the 90s, especially the 80s for me? Guys like, you know, they were the ones that would come in the ring and especially on like the Saturday morning show. They just, they just were like slaughter, you know, lambs to the slaughter. They were the guys that would go out there and just get beat up, <laughs> you know, Mario Mancini and Barrio and guys like that, Johnny K9 and there was Iron Mike Sharp and all these guys would just get the crap beat out of them every week. Mark knows all these. He's making all these gestures. I'm like, <laughs> you know, the rest of the, the knee with the O, that's the Barrio. Barrio, yeah, with the Iron two. Iron Mike Sharp on the arm. Absolutely. Yeah, Canada's greatest athlete who just yell all the time. So good. Um, okay, I got a couple things I want to share with you guys. Okay, so my son is doing online schooling as as all kids are right now and so just this morning he logs into his class 
and his teacher asked the kids if they could share any ideas with the class for any movies or TV shows, you know, for the other kids. You know, that might be a good suggestion for them to watch. So, like, one kid mentioned some show called Sweet Tooth. I don't know what the hell that is. Yeah, it's it's it just dropped on Netflix. It's pretty yeah. good. I don't know what it is. And then another, I don't know if it's suitable for children, but well, I don't know. Kid mentioned Not my it. kid. <laughs> and then another kid was talking about. Uh, Oh, that movie that you were talking about, Derek, the other week, it was like Mitchell's versus the Machines. Oh, Mitchell's versus the Machines, yeah. yeah. So they're all talking about these like family-friendly movies and stuff like that, right? And then it gets to my son. And so what movie does he recommend for his class? Jaws. Nice. <laughs> and he's like, the shark kills five people and a dog. <laughs> like, Spoiler alert, come on. <laughs> so I'm expecting a phone call you know, later this week, you know, from the principal. I, I tell you, between this and that French accent thing he did the other week. That's what I was thinking of. I was listening to oh, an old man. show where you were talking about oh, that. Geez. Oh, my God. I'm pretty yeah. sure the school I, I, That principal's will. got you on speed dial, oh, for sure. It's going to flag me, for sure. So, another thing. Mark, remember back in the day when you, me, and Derek would get together and we would play rock band together? Absolutely. God, that was fun. You used to play guitar. And Derek would sing and I would play drums. Well, the thing is, Mark, I actually now have a real set of drums down here in the studio. And I was wondering, just for old time's sake, if I could just take off the cans for a second and go over and get on the kit and play something for you. And if you could tell me if it's any good. Sure. All right. Okay. Give me a second. Hold on. Let me get this off. Okay. All right. Okay, just give me one second. Think, I think it was missing something. <laughs> what was I missing? It, it was missing some cowbell. Oh, we need more <laughs> cowbell, of course. Oh, man. You know what else we need around here? Here's your dad joke of the week. I figured since we're doing Moneyball this week that I should do a baseball dad joke. All right, guys, how do you know that baseball is the first sport mentioned in the Bible? I, I don't know. I have no idea. No idea? I missed Be that day in Sunday school. Because the first words in the Bible are in the big inning. Oh. Boo. The big inning? You know, they score a lot of runs. It's a big inning. No. Like the sixth? Yeah. <laughs> that's, what, <laughs> that's what it is, yeah. Let me tell you about this Dukes of Hazard remake I've been imagining. What are you doing? Some of this stuff was just too wacky for me. I am the crotchety old guy who just hates everything new. They're always having parties. And then I also watch Three's Company. This is my lot in life. Nostalgia is a powerful drug. It's him and so-and-so in a romantic relationship, and they open an ice cream store. It's a dinklage. He was always making moonshine. He went on to do gay porn. Oh, my, my, my. What the hell? So this week we are going to review Moneyball, 
So the movie was released in September of 2011. It was directed by Bennett Miller, written by Stephen Zalian and Aaron Sorkin. And it was based on Michael Lewis's uh, book of the same name from 2003. It's basically a story of the 2002 Oakland Athletics, uh, from the viewpoint, at least, of their general manager, Billy Bean. And really, it's about how he changed the game of baseball by using, you know, these advanced metrics to, you know, assess the players and their talent and to try and win more games. So, Derek, this movie was nominated by you, obviously. So why don't you kick us off and just talk a little bit about why you felt this would be a good movie for us to do here on the podcast? Sure. So uh, I had read the book Moneyball based on uh, Mark's recommendation, based mm-hmm. on recommendation from a number of people that that we knew that had read it. And not that I'm the world's biggest baseball guy, but just the idea of um, of how the game was uh, reinterpreted and reanalyzed using various statistics. And being a, a fantasy sports guy, that certainly appealed to me. And um, I thought the book was excellent. Uh, when the movie came out, it had a huge cast. It had, a, you know, a, a lot of good people working behind the scenes. I thought I'll give it a chance. And I thought it was great. And I know that often with the newer movies, uh, you're not always a big fan of where new movies go, especially anything that's like a sequel, a remake, a part of a franchise. Well, this is based on a book, which is based on real life, which is based on baseball, which I know you like a lot. So I figured there was a very strong likelihood that you would watch this and enjoy it, or at least watch this and not hate it. But I knew it would also give us an opportunity to have uh, some discussions about the the themes that are brought up in the movie, which I think uh, are pretty rich for, um, for a discussion. So with that being said, um, what, what were your sort of initial thoughts? Did you had not seen it in its entirety before? Right? No, I'd seen parts of it. Uh, my initial thoughts sitting down and watching it from start to finish. This movie was absolutely fantastic. Loved yeah, it. I'm glad Loved you enjoyed it. it. Now, Mark, you're obviously, as I mentioned, a big sports fan, a big baseball fan. What was your initial take? Now, keep in mind, we're going to do a deep dive on this in a few minutes. But what's your initial take on Moneyball just as a film overall? So my, I can remember the first time seeing the movie and actually being a little bit disappointed because I love the book so much. I'm not a big reader of books. So when I'm going to watch a movie <laughs> based on a book that I've actually read, I was quite excited. Um, it's good, but I can tell you now, I've probably seen the movie 25 times. Oh. I love the movie. Wow. But um, no, my, my the very first time I saw it, I thought it was just okay because I think there's some glaring gaps from the book, but the book isn't necessarily the easiest book to make into a movie. One of these times, one of the, when we do the topic shows, Derek, we have got to cover the topic of movies that were better than the book because it's just always this ongoing thing where anytime a movie is based on a book, the book is always better. You know, and and like uh, like Mark was just saying, that was the case here. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the, just how it performed at the box office. It came out in 2011, like I said. And this was the same year as Thor, which we covered a couple weeks ago. So I already ran this down. And Derek, I'm glad that you mentioned how I don't really like sequels and that sort of thing. Because in 2011, it was all sequels at the box office. Yeah. There's Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2. There's Transformers Dark of the Moon. Twilight movie. There's The Hangover Part Two. There's Pirates of the Caribbean. One of the one of those movies. Fast and the Furious Five. Cars Two, and then all 
the way down at 44th spot was Moneyball. And it actually, it, it just edged out Justin Bieber, Never Say Never, and Jack and Jill. And Jack we'll do those two on an upcoming podcast. <laughs> we, we'll give you a twofer. We'll do them both the same week. And the thing is, like, like Moneyball made $72 million and it finished in 44th spot. So I think people had a lot of disposable income you know, 10 years ago, but Jack and Jill, <laughs> how the hell did that make $71 million? Well, I think Adam that, Sandler's got a huge following. It, it, I think it's it proves money. that American audiences will go see anything because that is, woman. that is one <laughs> yeah. of the single worst movies ever made in the history of film. But anyway, yeah, I, I knew enough not to waste my time oh, on that one. God, that was bad. But anyway, so Moneyball, because of the, I think because of the subject matter, you know, um, first being baseball and second being advanced statistics. I think it, it was never probably likely to be a major blockbuster. I mean, it's it's no Jack and Jill, you know. <laughs> but, you know, people when people have a choice, sabermetrics or Adam Sandler in drag. <laughs> you know, I think we're the, I think we know where American audiences stand on that one. But but I think that like I say, the movie did well, both at the box office and critically. Um, like I say, it was released on September the 23rd in 2011, and it was in wide release, and it grossed uh, $75 million against a budget of $50 million, and it was nominated for six Academy Awards, including Best Picture and Best Actor, Best Supporting Actor, and, and some others. It didn't take home any Oscars, but obviously, it was a pretty reasonable hit with audiences and critics alike. Uh, Derek, do you see this as more of a critical darling kind of movie what do you think well I, I mean i don't know if that's necessarily fair so we've talked about this before the idea that um there's a lot of politics when it comes to uh nominating and winning these various awards like an oscar and a lot of times there's things like oh well we'll give this guy an award as a makeup for body work we talked about that with scorsese this this is really for your body of work not this particular work and a lot of times we look back on the Oscars and we say, like, after a few years have passed, you sort of go, yeah, what were we thinking when we awarded it to that? And I think this is a really good example of a year where you look back on it and you shake your head. And you, you go, what were people thinking? Like, so as you mentioned, this movie was nominated for six Academy Awards, including Best Picture. Well, that year, Best Picture went to the silent movie, The Artist, which mm -hmm. I can guarantee you, you ask 100 people on the street, I'd be shocked if more than one of them had seen it. And you or hate even that. be able to you tell you it was a silent too. movie. And you look at the rest of the contenders, like, these movies were not great movies. The Descendants, yeah, it was okay. Uh, Hugo, yeah, it was okay. Midnight in Paris, I, again, critically acclaimed, yeah. Tree of Life, I don't even know what that is. War Horse, that's like a bomb from Steven Spielberg. Then you got Moneyball. And you look at it now, like Moneyball is a, is, people have seen it. People enjoy it. Same with the acting category. Like they gave it to, I don't even know how to pronounce this guy. It's a guy from the artists, John Dijunin. Sure. I probably butchered that. Uh, you know, again, who is this guy? Has he done anything since? Maybe he's a big actor in Europe and that's fine. But I'm like, I never heard of him. And then you got Brad Pitt in arguably what was one of his best performances ever um and uh yeah like i think i think this it really got overlooked like he i think brad pitt should have won for this movie and uh so yeah it, it wasn't a super duper box office hit it i mean it made reasonable money comparatively to other movies that year as you said it, it finished like 40 something but it is on cable a lot it is a movie most people have seen at least once it's a movie that sports fans have seen over and over again and like Mark said, he's probably seen it 25 times. I've definitely seen it 10, probably closer to 15. 
and there's a lot of good quotes from it. It's it is a movie that I think it's less, it gets better and better with age. You watch it, you watch it again, you pick up new details. No, it's I, I like it a lot. I think it's got a lot of a lot of things going for it. I think one of the reasons that this movie was so successful, sort of in general, is that even though it's about advanced stats, you know, in a sport that, that not everybody loves, let's be honest, like not everybody watches baseball, but it, the movie plays pretty broadly. Like, I mean, it's, it's got Brad Pitt in it, you know, so that's going to attract people that, you know, don't necessarily like baseball, but, you know, they like Brad Pitt, like my wife for example, you know, she'd fall into that demographic, right? But for those of us that actually love baseball and those of us that love advanced statistics, this movie has a lot more to offer than just Brad Pitt, right? I mean, you know, although he's quite a looker, you know, he's no Chris Hemsworth, you know, from Thor the other day. I thought you were going to say he's no Chris McBrien. Yeah, well, well, you know, I'm more like Wilford Brimley than Chris Hemsworth, let's be honest. But um, one of the things that I find with movies that, that depict real life people and real life events is they tend to sometimes play hard and fast, you know, with the, with the facts, you know, they tend to embellish the story a little bit. So Mark, what do you think? You've read the book. What do you, and you were a huge baseball fan. What do you think about Moneyball from an accuracy standpoint? Well, and that's sort of where I lose some of the, that's where I was disappointed in the first time seeing it. So not that I don't think that anything they say isn't true. I think there's a lot of the boring parts that they didn't get into. And we'll, we'll dig into that a little bit more, but the whole theory around the Moneyball statistic of, Hey, just get on base, right? It was all about the stats of, I don't care what you look like. I don't care how you're going to do it, just find your way on base. Well, the whole dream person, athlete, that they base that on is Kevin Euclid. And I think he, they talk about him for about 10 seconds in the entire movie. But that is who the whole book they talk about. This is the ideal person that you build this around. So to only talk about him for literally 20 or 30 seconds, that to me was the biggest miss from adapting this book to a movie. But Mark, uh, sorry, yeah. the, I, I know that the, in some cases with, with movies based on real life, you will not always have, you know, this is a movie about Mark Myers, so here's a guy playing Mark. You'll have, well, here's a guy playing Mark, but it's really about Mark and Derek and Chris and the things that those three guys did, but that's complicated for our story, so we're just going to sort of merge them into one. So it's my understanding that the uh, character played by Jonah Hill in the movie Peter Brand he's really based on like a different guy or a couple of guys. Like, is there, are there examples again? Cause I don't know all the baseball people, but were there standouts to you? Like both in the book or the movie where it was like, this was really this guy, or this was really these two guys or something like that. Like, was there any of that, that, that you could speak to? Well, I do know uh, that the Peter brand is not a real person. He didn't really come from Cleveland. Um, it is based on, and I can't forget the, the GM's name, but that, that character or, ended up being an assistant GM with Oakland, went on to be the GM of LA. So he is based off of predominantly uh, uh, Peter LaDuca or something like that. I can't remember his last name. Um, But that character is a couple of people that they meshed in. So again, yes, to make it for good TV, that part of the story was not accurate. So what about with the athletes? Did you find, was there any of that that you can think of? Like, no, from what I know of the athletes, other than your Dave Justice, that they really showed as an arrogant, hey, I'm I'm the be all and end all. No, they did a really good job. And Jeremy Giambi being a 
sort like party of party guy. Yeah, yeah, right now. Oh, we know his stories from Las Vegas. Yeah, because it was Jason's little brother. Yeah, he was probably riding on his coattails and got everything paid for. But no, they really were the land of misfit toys. So you didn't know a lot of these guys. Um, they so a couple right. of, a couple things. I just want to just jump in. So you're, are you saying that Jonah Hill's character wasn't in the book? Correct. Peter Brand is the name of the character in the movie. That's not a real person. But there was a real guy who basically filled that role in real life, right? I think I remember reading he didn't want, in the movie, he didn't want his real name being used. So they they changed it, and then they had to change enough about him so that he couldn't sue them for the movie or something. But in the book, I think they talk about him by his real name because the book is factual. Right. And you don't think Dave Justice was really kind of arrogant at that point in his career? Oh no, I do. I, I think that oh, okay. was that that yeah. came across that way of hey, I'm 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 the only one here, and it's like, well, yeah, you are, but you're not who you think you are. There was a scene where he's like, I get made, six, I get paid six million dollars. I'm that much better than everybody else. He's like, I'm not paying you six million. The Yankees, the Yankees are, are paying, paying half your salary to play yeah. against them. That's how little they yep. think of you. And I'm like, I love that line. Like this Great movie has line. so many good lines. Now I had heard that the uh, the coach. Um, played by Philip Seymour Hoffman. In the movie, his name was Art Howe. I don't know if that was the real guy. Yep, yeah, Mark's yep, not Art Howe. Yep. I had heard, um, I'd listened to another podcast where they talked about this years ago, and they were saying that, if anything, Philip Seymour Hoffman actually downplayed how much of a jerk this guy was. Apparently, he was like one of the most difficult people to work with or get along with, and he hated everybody, and he had an attitude. And and although people say Philip Seymour Hoffman did uh, you know, a good job with the little screen time he had the criticism from people who apparently knew art how was like you made him seem a lot nicer than he ever was in real life i love how billy bean sort of has the idea <clears throat> to use these different stats to build his roster and art how he wants to go more old school you know with the way he manages so what does billy bean do trades away the players so how has no choice but to play the guys that billy bean wants in there i thought that was pretty cool because he um Art Howe wanted to go, or um, Billy Bean wanted Scott Hatterberg in there over right. Carlos Pena. And the thing is, too, like, like if you start to dig into some of these players and, like, you know, playing fantasy baseball, like, I love this stuff. But once Carlos Pena got traded, you know, he started to get on base a lot more. You know, not because he suddenly became patient at the dish or anything. Like, pitchers just wouldn't throw to him because he was crushing, like, 30 and 40 home runs a year in Tampa Bay. But um, he took over 100 walks twice after he left Oakland. So it's, I don't know if he just bought into that whole thing or whatever. Okay, I have a question for you guys I want to I ask. How the hell was Jonah Hill nominated for an Oscar for this role? Derek, how? Well, honestly, I think he did a great job in this movie. And say what you will about Jonah Hill, but he has uh, he's had a pretty good career all things considered like you sort of think of him as oh he's the goofball comedy guy from super bad and uh you know he's in uh, all these he's in the 21 jump street remake and uh, and that kind of stuff but it's like he's been nominated for two academy awards he was nominated for this movie and two years later he was nominated for the wolf of wall street and in both of those cases the person he plays against uh, in this one it's brad pitt and in wolf of wall street it's leonardo dicaprio those two guys got nominated. So it's like, it's clear that when he is given an opportunity to demonstrate some actual acting chops, he can do it. Now, I don't think he should have won, uh, and he didn't, but 
I don't have any issues with that nomination for, for him. I think it's, uh, especially this being his first nomination, I think that uh, it just speaks to the the performance he gave with this character. I don't know, I, Mark, what do you think? I can, I'll just jump in. I can see where he got nominated for Wolf of Wall Street because, you know, he was he was quite good in that. But he was nothing special in this role at all. I didn't think. I thought he just kind of walked his way through the part. But uh, Mark, what do you think? Jonah Hill. I thought he was actually a really good Robin to Batman, right? Maybe he really helped elevate Brad Pitt. Um because they really did play off each other in a lot of those scenes, right? Where one was the straight man and the other guy was trying to tell a different story or, hey, we're we're gonna be very different. We are gonna be yin and yang. One's gonna be fat and one's gonna be skinny. One's gonna be good looking, one's not, right? So that almost played the entire, the entire movie, right? He brought the, they made it seem that he brought the idea forward and Billy runs with it. So, um, no, I, I, I that's not my forte, the acting side of it, but I I have no issue with him being nominated. I like the fact that his character graduates from Yale with an economics degree. And the, the whole irony of that whole situation was that all those old school guys around the table, they all thought he was out of his element. Yeah. But meanwhile, the whole game of baseball is just rooted in economics. Definitely yeah. during the 90s and into the 2000s. And, and not just from a statistical point of view, but just from an economics aspect, because Johnny Damon at one point, you know, they depict, he leaves the team for more money, right? And, and like, remember when Billy Bean was on the phone with Scott Boris and they had this deal for like 7.5 million and then Boston offers, you know, Johnny Damon 7.7, so he won't honor the deal. And it's, it, the whole game is about economics, you know? Um, I thought the difference between or the difference with um, Brad Pitt and Jonah Hill is that they want to make it about numbers, right? Just yeah. stats instead of just money. Or uh, I guess you should, you, know, you should say they want to make it about the right stats because in this case, it well, was really on base yeah. percentage, right? I mean, I think I think it's fair to say that in any sport, a win equals dollars. If your team is winning, people are going to come out to see yes. it, see your game in person. You can raise your ticket prices. People will watch on TV. You can raise your advertising prices. The more full your stadium, the more concessions you're going to sell. Like the more, the better your team does, the more jerseys you're going to sell. If they win championships, now you can sell championship hats and championship paraphernalia. So sports is all about dollars, and and a, and a W equals a dollar. Absolutely. So to your point. They're not worrying. They're, they're focusing on what it's going to take to get the W. And and like one of my favorite scenes, which I want to talk about in a minute, when he's like, why do we like this guy? Because he gets on base. He's like, but he walks a lot. He goes, do I care if it's a walk or a hit? No, nope. he just has to get on base. That's the statistic. And I, I think that that is, um, uh, you know, a big part of this movie. Like it's called Moneyball for a reason. And it's because they're trying to make the most with the little money they've got. They're trying to generate those W's. At one point, someone in the movie says, it's something like, uh, we're not playing fantasy baseball here, <laughs> you know, was the line. But I, I want to know from you guys, especially Mark, how important do you think it, it is to use advanced sort of saber metrics, you know, that, that the fantasy baseball industry uses in order to win real games? Well, it's interesting you say that, right? So I think there's, I'm going to take it in two directions as I think there's an ESPN 30 for 30 on it where they the creators of whip right walks uh divided by walks and hits divided by innings pitched yeah. which is probably the best pitching stat out there 
and they even talk about these guys who created that from a fantasy standpoint should they maybe be in the hall of fame for that and i would think it it is yes for that reason but to bring it into is it going to equate to a win in real life versus like taking these fantasy stats there's a lot baseball's been doing it for a hundred years of trying to figure this out daryl morey in basketball right he's he's again he's the the economics background and tried to find that formula in basketball there really isn't one in hockey they've been trying to get it well now baseball's gone to walk strikeout home run that's it and it's it's not very fun to watch anymore so but as we get deeper and deeper into stats innings pitched are way down because guys pitch counts are going up because all they're doing is throwing to the radar gun who can throw 100 and if you're trying to throw 100 every time you can't throw seven innings eight innings gosh i don't know if, if one guy will have five complete games this year in the in the mlb so it's funny that the the stats are definitely driving uh the way baseball is being played today Derek, you're more of a hockey guy than you, but you know but but you've participated in fantasy leagues with us and, and you still bet on sports. So how much do you rely on stats when you're analyzing sports? Oh, all the time. I find anytime I bet with my heart, oh, this is my favorite player. This is my favorite team. Oh, they're on a winning streak. Anytime I bet with my heart, I lose. But anytime I rely on the on the stats and the facts, I have a much better winning percentage. Now, obviously, it's not enough for me to quit my job and become a professional gambler. I'm not that good. But... I find with hockey, there's a handful of teams that I follow pretty closely. And when I'm trying to bet on those teams, my heart drives my bets so much. But when I'm betting on a team that I know nothing about, that I've never watched a game from them this season, that I couldn't tell you more than two people on the on the roster, I go to the stats. I just crunch the numbers and I look at it and I, I play the I play the percentages. It's like any other bet. Uh, you know, if you're if you're at, say, like the roulette table, there are certain bets that you have a better percent chance of winning. Well, those ones pay out less because the casino knows there's a better chance they're going to pay out. So it's the same with some of the sports stuff. I rely on the on the stats to to help paint the picture for me. I haven't watched anybody like if, if, uh, pick a random team somewhere on the West Coast. So the California or San Francisco, San Francisco Giants, the Giants basketball, no, or baseball, baseball, Giants. So San Francisco Giants. Okay, you want me to bet on them? I haven't watched a Giants game in. 10 ever. years if ever yeah i've watched it when they played the blue jays probably so i would have to rely on the stats and then i would have to go uh based on that so yeah i think i think the stats are important for for fans so they have a sense of what to expect i think it's important for the the economics of the game the people you know like we saw in this uh, in this movie right it's like different teams have different financial budgets and so it's like well how do you try and level that playing field you, you rely on the stats. You look for the, 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 the diamond in the rough. Well, one, one point that the old school baseball guys in this movie keep making is this idea of intangibles, right? Like, so I wonder what your thoughts are on that. Because, like, for example, the fact that um, uh, Jeremy Giambi spends, you know, a lot of his time off the field at strip clubs, you know, and in casinos. And David Justice is old. And some of the players are overweight, you know, and, and you got to think about <clears throat> things like team chemistry. You know, that's got to play a part, right? Or do you think the game can just be predicted by numbers? You know, like you've well, talked I, about the importance of stats. Like, like I mean, it's one thing to play stratomatic baseball, but the rules are different when you're talking about human beings, right? 
Yeah, I mean, if the stats predicted it accurately, they wouldn't have to play the games. So there's always those intangibles. Mm, right. But, and I, I want Mark to talk about this a little bit, is, you know, the idea of what they're they're talking about is is the law of averages over time. If, you're st- if your sample size is large enough for any statistical measurement, you're going to see certain results. And I think that's, at its heart, is great. But um, obviously, there are going to be intangibles. There are going to be unusual, unexpected things. And it could be any of those things you described. And that that's that X factor that can contribute in. And then the big question becomes, well, how much does that X factor uh, move the needle? And uh, I know Mark and I were talking about this. So, Mark, talk about this for a bit. We were- well, and I think that's just it, right? Baseball is 162 games. At one point, Jonah Hill says, um, I'm looking for... 841 runs or something like that like just a massive amount of of data so great on 162 games you're going to find patterns and things that can work and okay i can give up if i don't steal this base and i make an error here or my outfielder can't get to that ball because he doesn't look the part he's fatter or slower or doesn't have a good arm okay i can make up for it here with the runs but come to the playoffs and you're into a at this point, they had already changed the format. They're now not even playing four out of sevens. They're into three out of fives. So you're now that you can throw that out the you can throw all that statistical stuff out the door because you're in such a small number. Yeah, you you might just win twenty nothing because your guys are all doing everything's coming together. But um, at that point, your sample size is so small. This happens in every sport where when you're trying to lead it just by the numbers. That's why they always say, well, okay, who cares? Throw the regular season out. Now it's a different game. And I think that's that's the biggest flaw, I feel, in the money ball or in the statistic, anything you're trying to drive just by a stat. Yeah. The term money ball, too, is a metaphor for the fact that baseball is a business. No matter yeah, how, much, how much you and I love this game and what it means to us, it's a business. It's pure and simple. Right. Whether you look at it through the lens of statistics or the lens of economics, baseball is a business. And and I, I think that's why I like fantasy baseball so much, because it combines sort of two of my passions, business and baseball. You know, but um, one thing I, w- I was thinking about, you were talking about the players earlier. I want to go back to that because there's that whole subplot of um, moving Hatterberg from behind the plate to first base. And there's this massive resistance from the old guard. And I didn't understand that. It, it kind of caught me off guard because to me, catchers move positions all the time. Like Carlos Delgado moved to first base. Craig Biggio moved to second. Dale Murphy moved out to the outfield. Josh Donaldson went from behind the plate and he went to third base. So I, I don't really know why there was all this resistance to Hatterberg moving to first. Was that, you, Mark, you've read the book. Like, was that just put in for the movie or what, what's going on? No. I, so it, it, that's a good segue because he had the, he had the on-base percentage, right? That's what they were trying to figure out. Who are guys that, who could they get on the cheap that could still probably produce some of the things that they were looking for? But it's funny. And that was one of my, probably my biggest nitpick with the movie is, Chris, you said that, do they look the part and this and that? I thought they did a great job of dialing in that, hey, Billy Bean was your five-star athlete, right? Six foot five, good looking, great shape. Okay, well, you're gonna be the you're gonna be the cat's ass when he didn't end up being a great pro. 
But they're the, the very last scene they show uh, Jeremy Brown, who's the, the overweight catcher at the college that hits the home run that mm-hmm. fell and he didn't know. Okay, the story, again, there's a whole chapter on this. And he talks about it. It's called We're Not Selling Jeans. Because Jeremy Brown didn't look the part. Nobody dropped, Nobody scouted him. You said the old school scouts. He was fat. He was out of shape. He didn't look the part. They saw that he had a 400 on base percentage. That guy was, I think he was ranked 1,134th by Baseball America. Oakland picked him 40th overall. It was a, it was a, a, a late first-round pick, um, a compensation pick. Now, part of the story that sucks for me in that version or through that lens, Jeremy Brown never ended up panning out in the MLB. But the theory behind why they drafted him made all the sense in the world to, I don't care what he looks like. I don't care that he's over overweight and out of shape. He does exactly what we need him to do. And that's, they drafted him on, on statistics and not on look. Yeah. <clears throat> you mentioned the backstory of Billy Bean because he, he was this five tool superstar coming up as a kid and he just doesn't pan out. Right. So how do you feel like I was, I was questioning this as I was watching and how this relates to the story like, was it just to make Billy Bean sort of resentful of the way the game was structured? Or does it reinforce, you know, the idea that these these are these are humans, you know, that they can't be predicted by some mathematical algorithm? You know, like, I mean, like what influence on the story? Again, Mark, maybe you're good to answer this having read the book. Like what what was that meant to do? That backstory. In my opinion, so the book starts off with him being at a uh, combine and um, because of the Blue Jay relationships and our background, Pat Gillick's the one that's – they're there and they're scouting these athletes and they make them do a race. And I think there were seven or eight of them. It was just a speed race. And Billy won it. And they made them run again because they didn't believe that he should have won the race based on, like, I think Vince Coleman was in it. Or like, it was guys that were, like, all these star athletes. And they they didn't believe that Billy passed the – he didn't pass the eye test in this situation. So I think they – I think his whole thing is, hey, I've been on both sides of the, of the coin where everybody's like, oh, you just look the part and go. But also other times where he's like, oh, I've got this ability, but you don't believe that I have it. So – um, it's a tough one. I, I'm sure he probably wanted to just stick it to the man and say, hey, look, I'm, I'm never going to get a $200 million payroll like the Yankees. So how do I beat them? How can I find a way to beat them? Yeah. So, Chris, let me mm-hmm. I want to let me talk to that. And then I want to back up something you talked sure. about a minute ago. So for me, when I'm watching this movie, the whole stuff about Billy Bean, in my mind, is more in there in the way that it's been presented in the movie is more just the framing device of, mm-hmm. uh, you know, because the story is told from his point of view, you want to know what his understanding is that. And in one point, he, I think it's when he's talking to David Justice, where Justice is like, I've never heard any any manager speak to the players like that. And he's like, well, you've never had a, a GM who used to be a player. And and I think so that's they're trying to sort of give you that idea of, you know, this is how and why Billy is open to new ideas is because he's not. Uh, he doesn't have the typical background of, of a GM up until this point. Um, and honestly, of all the things in the movie that are accurate or inaccurate, personally, as a as a movie person and not really knowing the b- baseball background, I kind of thought some of that stuff from Billy's backstory might have been um, glamorized a little bit to make for a more interesting story, to give it a slightly better framing. 
I, I don't know. Do you know, Mark, is, is what they talk about with Billy Bean, is that pretty accurate from what you remember? Yeah, that he, yeah he was a first-round pick, didn't really pan out, then got up and down the minors, probably played. I think they played for four or five different pro uh, teams. But again, because of the pedigree, everybody wanted to keep trying him. But no, it just yeah. wasn't good enough. Yeah, so... So there's that. Now, Chris, one of the things I want to go back to is you were mm. um, you were talking about like um, um, I'm trying to think of how to even describe it, where they were saying like, oh, well, like why was there so much resistance to Hatterberg? That's what you were yeah. asking. So moving positions. Me, one yeah. of the things I really like about this movie, and one of the reasons that I think it's almost more relevant today than it was ten years ago, even though it was ten years after the events in the movie, is this idea of challenging the established norm. To, so one of the, my biggest pet peeves in my work is when I ask somebody, why are we doing it this way? And the answer is because we've always done it that way. And and when I can't get a more definitive answer than we do it this way because it works, we do it this way because we've always done it this way, that that is a flaw in my mind because if people don't understand why they're doing something, then maybe you should be questioning why you're doing it the way you're doing it and how you're doing it. And I think this movie does a really good job of illustrating that. It's like, you know, they, they've got this potential new system to look at 100 years of baseball history. And the scouts are super resistant to it. They're like, you know, you've got a guy here with Google and a degree from Yale. He doesn't have the 30 years of experience we have. And it's, it's not that Billy is um, telling these scouts you're useless. He's just trying to convince the again, as portrayed in the movie, he's trying to convince them that maybe there are other ways to get the answer. And all they keep thinking is, if it's not my way, it's not the right way. And and I think in today's culture, we see this more and more and more. If the way that it's been done for so long, if the only reason you can answer is we do it this way because we've always done it that way, maybe it deserves as another examination. And as a metaphor, you know, you can look at it more broadly and you look at things like women's rights, gay rights, uh, you know, things like that in real life. And it's like, how did you get advancements in these things? It's like, well, people challenge the established norm. Oh, well, why should these disenfranchised groups be given an opportunity to do something that they couldn't do before? And it's like, why not? Oh, because we've never done it in the past. Well, maybe now's a good time to explore why that was and what's the harm in giving it a try? Why don't we try something different? And I think from sort of that broader theme, that metaphor, this movie is is more relevant today from that point of view than it was 10 years ago because I think we're, we're more open to these ideas. And so I think that's one of the reasons that I enjoy this movie more every time I watch it is this idea of challenging the establishment. Now, obviously, baseball has always been about old white guys, and even this movie is just about the white guys. So on its face, it doesn't necessarily work in the way that I've just described it, but it sort of does because they keep leaning on this. We've done it this way for a hundred years. You don't know what I know. Yeah, but I'm going to bring some new ideas. Let's give them a try. So. so in the end of in the end of the movie, Billy Bean gets offered the biggest contract in history, right? To leave his small market A's for the large market Boston Red Sox. And yeah. then he would become the embodiment of that overpaid player that, yeah. you know, he railed against. So he turns it down. And then for one final metaphor, because this film has lots of metaphors, as you mentioned, Eric, uh -huh. the last metaphor, and as, as Mark touched on, when Jonah Hill shows him the video of the overweight ball player who hit the home run, but didn't yeah. realize that he'd hit a home run. So with all these metaphors in this movie, it just, it brings me to, to, to this question for you guys to wrap this up. 
What is your most romantic baseball memory? Because in, in life or in this movie? No, in, in life, in, in real life. Because even though baseball is a business, you know, it's a stats and numbers game. At its soul, baseball, at least to me, is the most romantic sport in the world. So do you have a romantic baseball memory in any way? Uh, Derek, maybe we'll start with you. Not really. Uh, I mean, I, I, like you said, I've never been a huge baseball fan. You're more a hockey uh, guy. Yeah. I am. And uh, now, uh, when I moved back to Toronto after I finished school, uh, Mark was working at the Toronto Blue Jays in the in the ticket office and got me a job. So I actually was in the ticket office for a number of years. Um, so I, I got to see a lot more games because we got complimentary tickets. Um, and obviously, we got to see a little bit more of the behind-the-scenes uh, business end of sports, but even with all of that, even with the curtain pulled back, uh, to me, baseball just ha- has never really done it for me as a sport. So to your point, I don't have any like this is you know uh, my favorite baseball memory. This is the romance of the game. This uh, it, for me, I just don't have one. I'm sorry. Oh, Derek, <laughs> Derek, Mark. What about you, Mark? I, I, if I could, I'll, I'll take his. I okay. have two. <laughs> I've so, got a few. So yeah, well, I've got more than two, but I'll I'll keep it to two. Okay. So, okay. Uh, as Derek said, I did have a. I, when I graduated from college, I, I worked for the Blue Jays for three years. So, uh, clearly fell in love with the team. This would have been in two thousand. Uh, it's a hot summer day in June, and uh, we're playing the Red Sox, and it's sort of that tipping point to that season where we're gonna. This is going to be something special. And Pedro uh, Martinez pitching for Boston and hadn't give up a home run all year or something. It was something with how many home runs he had given up or lack thereof. And Carlos Delgado is our star at the time comes up and it's on his birthday and he hits three home one, three home runs in the same game, including one to walk it off on a Saturday, full building going insane. Remember I'm recently graduated. I work for the team. Like, it's like, oh my gosh, this is unreal. So that that's like the one that uh, like you jumped out of your seat. This is unreal. Um, and then the romantic side of baseball, and it's probably now more of an afterthought, but uh, my late uncle was a diehard Tiger fan. And he and I actually were at the game, and I think Derek was with us, when uh, Justin Verlander pitched a no-hitter for the Tigers against the Jays. So nice. um, that'd be sort of the romantic one for me. Yeah, and that day <clears throat> that Mark's talking about, mm-hmm. that I remember this clearly. After the baseball game, my friends and I went and saw in the theater the premiere of Thor, which we reviewed just two episodes ago. So it's all, it all ties together. together. It's all it? together. Now, Chris, uh, yeah. so tell us yours, and then I got a follow-up question for you. All right. Well, for me, there's a few, so just buckle up for a second, okay? <laughs> they all involve the Toronto Blue Jays. So winning their first World Series in 92 with Joe Carter at first base when Otis Nixon bunts. Yep. That was big. Joe Carter hitting the game-winning home run to beat the Phillies in 93, you know. And then the most insane inning of baseball ever <laughs> was in the 2015 ALDS versus the Texas Rangers. Remember Russell Martin hit the batter trying to throw it a third and he got that run scored and then, then the inning lasted like like an hour long. And then the game ended with Jose Batista with the home run and the bat flip. But for me, all of those things, they're great memories. But they are absolutely topped by my most romantic baseball memory. So fall of 1992, the Jays made it to the ALDS against the Oakland Athletics. So pretty appropriate, you know, considering the movie we're doing. 
and they started Jack Morris. And they brought Jack Morris in because he was a playoff ace. You know, and, he, and of course, he goes out there and gets roughed up, you know. And the Jays are losing, and then the A's bring in their closer, Dennis Eckersley, who, as a relief pitcher, won not only the Cy Young Award that year, but he also won the AL MVP in 92. He was the most dominating pitcher in the game. And he comes in, and he strikes out Ed Sprague. And he points his finger like it's a gun at the Jays' dugout, and he, like, blows the smoke from his finger like he just shot them. And you just felt defeated. And just defeated, not just defeated, but defeated by a cocky And then the next inning, Roberto Alomar came to the plate. And remember, Alomar was a singles hitter. You know, he's had speed, you know. He wasn't a power guy. And then with Eckersley pitching to him, he swung at the pitch. And the second he made contact, his two arms just shot straight up in the air. Because he knew the ball was gone. And it was. He hit a home run off the best pitcher in baseball right after the pitcher taunted the team. And for me, it just changed everything. Like the Jays won the game. It changed the whole franchise. You know, they were winners. And just suddenly they knew it. And it was the single loudest I have ever yelled in my entire life watching a sporting event. I will never forget it. And it made me realize that anything can happen. And it made me love the game of baseball even more than I ever did before. So that was my most romantic baseball memory. So, Derek. so Chris, I, I'm going to say uh, uh, I'm a little surprised that you didn't mention, and I hope your wife doesn't listen to the show, that uh, I thought your most romantic baseball memory. <laughs> didn't you take your wife to a baseball game on your very first date? Very first date. that It was a blind date with my wife. Yeah. We went sure. to a game and we saw the, the Jays play a, uh, an interleague game against the Phillies. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. But that wasn't your most romantic game, so we'll, we'll, we won't tell her that. <laughs> she doesn't listen to the It's going to cost you a 10 spot. If it's not uh, transferred to my account by tomorrow, then I'm going to play this back for you. You're going to be in deep trouble. All good. Uh, anyway, the one last thing I want to say, because I know we're uh, getting close to the end here, is this movie for me has a lot of like really great quotes and a lot of rewatchable scenes. So, Chris, I wanted to just ask you, did you have any favorite scenes of the movie? Did anything stand out to you or like if, you know, if it was coming on, if, if you turned on the TV and it said like, Moneyball, coming back from commercial. What scene would you be like, oh, I hope this part's coming up next because that's the part I wouldn't mind watching again. I think, I think that's a great question. I think I like the scene when Billy Bean and Jonah Hill are in the office and they're trying to make the trades. Oh, that's a good one too, yeah. That yeah, that, yeah, that yeah. one stood out to me and, and, and that one I thought, that's the one, the one scene that kind of tweaked for me that I thought, oh, this is maybe why Jonah Hill would be nominated for an Oscar, like when he does that whole hand pump thing. But, yeah. it, you know, that it's still, he shouldn't have been nominated. But I like that scene a lot because it really showed what they were trying to do from a big picture point of view and just how they were like swinging all the deals all in a matter of like two minutes. So yeah. that was probably one of the, my favorite scenes. All right. I think, I think Mark and I probably on the same page for this one. So for me, and Mark can correct me if his is different, is the scene where um, Billy Bean brings Pete into the scouting room for the first time and um, and then he starts asking them, he's like, uh, they're like, okay, Billy, who do you want to talk about? He's like, none of these guys. Who do you want? And he's like, first guy I want, this guy. I think it was Justice. Yeah. They're like, old man, Jambi. Justice. And then he goes, then we want Jeremy Jambi. And then he's like, and next we want Hatterberg. And they're like, who? 
And then he's and then he's like, what's this guy's on base percentage? And he's like snaps his fingers and he points and, he, and then Pete's like, oh, you want me to talk? Yeah, Pete, when I point at you, you talk. His, his number is this. And he goes, what about the next guy? And he calls out the numbers. And he goes. We were recreating them in the aggregate and like the scouts are all having a hard time follow. They're trying to figure out the average They're doing the math. Mm -hmm. And then he's like, okay, next I want this guy. And he's like, guys, why do we like him? Don't make me point at Pete. <laughs> don't make me like, point at Pete again. On base. That's yeah. where he says, like, is it a walk? Is it a run? I don't care. I just want him on base. Um, that I love that scene start to finish. Even you could extend it a little bit earlier where he has a little, verbal sparring match in the uh, in the hallway with the manager with Philip Seymour Hoffman before he goes in to have it like if you start it from there and you run it through the whole scene mm -hmm. where he's like because he gets on base guys don't make me point at Pete I love that scene Mark what about you what's your favorite I have two and they're both related to Hatterberg oh. and the best is they went after he and Washington have gone to see him and they're like yeah. he's like ah it's first it's not hard and Wash says it's the hardest position on the field. And then when you see them at spring training and, and, and Billy Bean's like, Scotty H, picking machine. And he's picking up the ball. And then when he's in the eating the cereal, Dave Justice is oh, eating yeah. the cereal with Scotty yeah. Attenberg. He's like, so how's it going? Good. So what, what do you fear the most? The ball hit to me. In my general direction. Just as last. Yeah, and then he's yeah. like, good luck with that. Yeah. <laughs> he doesn't want to yeah. say. Yeah. <laughs> All good. Okay, so before we get to the trivia section, rate the movie Derek out of 10. What would you give it? Oh, definitely an 8, maybe even an 8.5. I, I like this movie a lot. I'm probably going to lean towards an 8.5 just because I, I really had a good time watching it again this week. Uh, Mark, what are you going to rate it out of 10? Um, geez, that's that's probably a pretty good number. I I think it keeps getting better. So, I do too. Yeah. I, Ask me I, any year, it's probably up to a nine, but for today, I'm going to go with eight and a half. Yeah. From first time seeing it, probably in the six and a half, but now I, I give it a solid eight. Oh, eight. And Derek, got to agree with you again. For me, 8.5 is yeah, what I would no, give it's, it. It's solid. I like it a lot. All right. Let's have some fun with Caveman. Sport movies. Mark, you're our guest. So one of the ways that we like to welcome people to the show around here is to put them in the hot seat and have some fun with trivia. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to give you the title of a movie. All you have to do is name the sport that's associated with the movie. Okay. okay. So sure. every one of these movies has a sport obviously prominently featured in the movie in some way. Okay. okay? So you all set? Sure. Okay. And I'll even give you the year if you want. Okay. Coach Carter... 2005 Basket. what's the movie or what's the Basket sport basketball very good okay the greatest game ever played it's a golf movie secretariat is a horse racing movie cinderella man is a boxing movie yes filmed in toronto no doubt okay Rollerball. Yeah, oh. Really? Yeah. Nineteen seventy. Is it roller skating? I know it's with James Kahn, but I'll give it to you. It's roller. Roller skating's close enough. Okay. Victory. Uh Victory's hot uh, oh no, that's miracle. Victory. Victory. Don't help Rugby? him, Derek. Don't help him, Derek. Can you see? <laughs> Soccer. Soccer? Did you say rugby or soccer? 
What year? 1981. Oh, okay. No, it's not Matt Damon. So, okay. I'll go with soccer. Matt Damon. (laughs) You're going with what? Soccer? Soccer. Oh, you were thinking Invictus. Soccer is correct. All right. Brewster's Millions. Oh, baseball. The Hurricane. Boxing. Invictus, you just mentioned. Rugby. And who was in that one again? Matt oh, Damon. Who, who started that movie? Who was it? Matt Damon. Matt Damon. Yes. Okay. MVP, Most Valuable Primate. That is a hockey movie. Heaven Can Wait. Um, some remake too, isn't it? Yes, it was got Warren Beatty. 1978 Warren Beatty was a remake of uh, Here Comes Mr. Jordan. What's the sport? Maybe it's a football movie. Good guess. One of my personal favorites from 1979, The Fish That Saved Pittsburgh. You know that? Bill Simmons talks about this all the time. Well, then it's got to be a basketball movie with Bill Simmons. Oh, oh, nice one. Sorry. I didn't right. think that was going to give him that one. Yeah. Summer rental. Sorry, Chris. What was the theme to the pitch to say, fish to save Pittsburgh? The you fish know it. save Pittsburgh. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Anyway, um, summer rental. Summer rental. Rental. John Candy, right? Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I have no summer idea. Summer rental. Something crazy like horseshoes or foosball. <laughs> no, honestly. No, I no it was sailing. Sailing. Oh, Remember him and Scully sport. were in the regatta. Okay, breaking away. Breaking away. I know, I know. Surfing? <laughs> no, it was cycling. Cycling. And the last one, personal best from 1982. That's a good one. Personal best. It's going to be something. Maybe a swimming movie? <laughs> No, it was it was track and field. Although it did feature some very acrobatic, if I remember correctly. Oh. <laughs> anyway. I thought for sure you were going to throw the cutting edge in there. <laughs> yeah, we knew that, that was ice skating, skating wasn't it? Yeah. It was a figure skating movie. Yeah. Uh, Derek, next week um, I have to counter your movie with a related movie of my own. I love baseball, no secret, and I love Gen X movies. Again, no secret. Um, so I'm going to combine my two loves. I'm going to make you go back and watch the 1989 baseball comedy, Major League. Nice. I love Major League. Oh, man. I mentioned uh, before our early days as friends back in Toronto in the early 1990s. And my buddies and I used to get together when we weren't doing fantasy baseball drafts. And we would watch this movie over and over and over again. It is a personal favorite. And I haven't seen it in a long time, but I can't wait to go back and watch it. And then come back and talk about it next week. Derek, you're up for the challenge, obviously. Oh, absolutely. I love this movie. It is so quotable. It has so many great scenes. I can't wait to talk about it. And I'm really now looking forward to going back and re-watching it this week. Mm -hmm, Me too. I thought you were going to give me Brewster's Millions after it showed up in the tree. Yeah, I thought about it. I thought about it. I like that movie a lot. Mark, it's been great having you on the show. I tell you what, how would you like to come back and join us again next week and talk about Major League? Are you up for that? I think I would love that. Yes. Right. Thank you. Yay, nice. He's going to come back and join us because he'll be a baseball guy and a good old friend. So next week, the three of us will get together again and we're going to talk about another baseball movie. Obviously, it's Major League. 
But I tell you what, until then, this is Chris McBrien for Derek Myers saying thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. Thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World. You can contact Chris and Derek at popgoesyourworld.com. Please take a minute and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download and listen to the show. 